So I got an easy question for you to start it out today. Uh, did anybody think the Christian life would be easy? Does anybody still think the Christian life is easy? Did any of you think that you become a Christian and nothing would change? Are any of you Christians and still trying not to change, still trying to hold on to what is most comfortable, what I've long, long for the, known for the longest time? I appreciate the hands and the honesty out there. And this is, these are real questions because for us, if we consider Christ rightly, we have to consider what that means for us. Because if we consider Him, His suffering, and what He's accomplished, that determines and directs our response to Him and to His work. This is essential to the Christian life, so we cannot separate what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this week. Hence, Part one and part two of the cost of salvation. Last week, the cost for Christ, what it costs him. This week, the cost for us. And we're also going to bring in Peter's confession because we can't separate any of this, the, these previous verses. So Peter's confession is also followed by a cost. He confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And he tells him, Okay, you want to know about the Christ? He's the Son of Man, and He's going to suffer many things. And not just that, but if you would follow after Me, you must suffer as well. You must deny yourself in return, as I have denied Myself. I've stepped down from the glory of heaven to put dust between My toes, to be mocked and beaten and scorned and crucified for you. But we don't like suffering. We don't like denial. We like ourselves. And uh, we're our favorite topic. And so I'm gonna, we're going to spend a little bit talking about ourselves this morning. I was going to have a, like a big, big uh, accountability meeting or AA meeting or whatever. Uh, just, yeah, DA like, you know, Depravity Anonymous or something. Except it's not anonymous. Uh, so... We don't like suffering. We want glory. We want the crown of Christ, but we don't want suffering. We want the crown of Christ, but the cross makes a lot of people uncomfortable, as it should, because it's a reminder of our sin. We want salvation, but we want to keep everything that we love about ourselves. Starting to hit home yet? We're just getting started. This is why Jesus has this family discussion that we're going to have in a moment and we need to have as a church family. Because this is essential. It's essential that we look at these things. And so um, I hope you strongly consider them. I hope you strongly consider Jesus' words. And nothing I'm going to say is not obvious. We're not going to deal with anything that is hard to understand and no difficult theological words. These are all simple concepts. Especially if you search the scriptures and you search your own heart, you're going to know them to be true. But they are so difficult because every one of us wrestles with our flesh every day. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 27 because, again, I want to bring all this together. I'm going to read through verse 1 of chapter 9. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, 
and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. There is a lot to take in in this passage, Lord. This is so central to our faith, yet we will spend the rest of our lives working it out. We will spend the rest of our lives falling short and repenting. We will spend the rest of our lives praising you because it is not based on our effort. Lord, I ask this morning that your spirit would teach us, guide us, correct us. That we would not be light on conviction this morning. Not that just that we would be sorrowful and beating ourselves up, that we would walk away from this building this morning challenged to deny ourselves for the cross of Christ. That we would walk away from this building this morning encouraged that our names are written in the book of life or terrified that we do not know the one who will judge the living and the dead. That's how we should respond if we do not know him. That is appropriate. Lord, we ask you to be with us this morning. May your word seek us and guide us and teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up here in verse 34 and calling the crowd to him. So up to this point, he had been talking with his disciples uh, privately. And now those who had come around him in the villages outside Caesarea Philippi, they come in. So we go from something that he only wants the disciples to know that he is the Christ to something that is a message for everyone. And so the first thing that I want you to see, even before we get into the text, that Jesus' messages are not easy to hear. Again, not because he uses difficult terms. He never spoke outside of the common vernacular. He never spoke like any heady theologian. He never rambled on like the scribes and the Pharisees. He used simple language. However, he probed hearts. He attacked flesh. He took aim at the idols that we place up in front of the living God. And he had a way of peeling back our humanity. 
which still is very trying for us. Because it's easy, if you've been in the church for a while, to read past these lines, which we should all be familiar with. But they still apply. And they should still bring surgery to our hearts. But this is not the Jesus that people want to preach. It's easy to preach a Jesus who wants you to be happy and wants you to be motivated and wants you to be successful. That's easy. And honestly, it's also easy and probably more common in our circles to preach a Jesus who wants you to be theologically accurate with no mention of dying to yourself. That's easy. But to say that he must become greater as I become lesser is not as easy. To say that I must die to everything and every piece of pride and selfish ambition in myself so that Christ may be glorified, that's a lot more difficult. And so when he starts out with this call, this is a call to everyone who wants to consider, will I follow Jesus or not? Am I following Jesus or not? So he says, if anyone would come after me. This is a call with a cost. You want Christ? You sure? Let's find out. First thing, if anyone would come after me, there's a bit of a play on words here. The same Greek word is used in verse 33 where he says, get behind me, Satan. So he's bringing to Peter's remembrance and the disciples' remembrance from just a moment ago. Get behind me. Quite literally, they will follow him. They will go behind him. But he must be first. If you want to follow me, you cannot confront me and stand face to face like Peter did. You must stand behind me. You must come behind me. There is a proper order to this. I have primacy in all things. This is where he starts. If you would come after me, and then he gives three strong commands. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a picture of true conversion. When we read the words, let him, we can also read, he must. There's emphasis here on what the believer must do. If you're really going to follow me first, you must deny yourself. Die to the old self. Deny. Leave him behind. I don't know you anymore. It can't be partial. You can't take him off the shelf when you want him. You must deny, put him to death. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. One of my favorite verses. Also a great verse to memorize. It'll be up on the screen. I want to kind of move through this a little quickly in the first part. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I deny that guy. I don't know him anymore. But Christ who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to follow Christ? Start there. You no longer live. The wicked Tim that chased after the things of the flesh no longer lives. The wicked George who chased after things of the flesh no longer lives. And I can go on and on down the line. We must start there. 
we must put to death the things of the flesh because there is something so much greater. But there cannot be life before there is death. So die to yourself, deny yourself. Second, take up your cross and follow me. You must cast your lot with Jesus. He told us it's not going to be easy. Die first and then carry a cross. Figure that one out. We follow Christ unto death. I love what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. Again on the screen. But far be it from me to boast, in, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This just complements what we have just seen. Deny yourself and take up your cross. There is a death here. I am putting the things of the world aside. I am becoming holy. I am set apart to God. And this is an astounding visual of the cross. Because the cross is not safe. The cross is not a fashion statement like it's become today. Pagan clothing designers will, put, will plast it all over and people will get tattoos and know nothing of what it means. It was a horrifyingly gruesome visual. Dead bodies. Dying bodies for days. Buzzards circling around. People crying out in agony. Stripped naked of all dignity. That's not a fashion statement. It's a death sentence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Imagine how shocking and jaw-dropping this is for the disciples when they hear this for the first time. This will have been the last things on their mind. This is the King of Israel. This is the Messiah, the promised one. A cross? That's for the least liked people in the Roman Empire. The ones the Romans really hated and wanted to make an example out of. That's not for the Son of the living God. Think about Mark's audience. Mark writing this about 30 years after Jesus' death to believers in Rome who are watching their brothers and sisters carry their crosses under Nero who may very well carry the cross themselves. We know nothing of this. But they did. Imagine the encouragement if you are a believer and you will not deny Christ. You deny yourself and quite literally carry your cross to your own death. This is what it means to follow me. Because there is no such thing as halfway crucifixion. There is no such thing as halfway following Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Continue after me. Walk in newness of life. I'll guarantee you a cross is heavy. It's not easy to carry. You can't carry the cross and the world with you. You'll have to set one down. Amen. Follow me in this way with everything else left behind. And this is not just in theory. We're going to look at this in practice. What does this mean for us? And so Jesus is going to unfold this. You're going to see in the next four verses, four, four is F-O-R. Following comes at a great cost. And before you can understand it, you need to understand what's going on in your own heart. You need to understand your own self. Because whatever costs you nothing is worth nothing. 
So Jesus is going to begin to attack the self here. So we're going to take aim at our favorite topic, ourselves. Every one of us has been in a conversation. It's like, okay, enough about you. When can we talk about me? And every one of us goes through our lives thinking what will make my life easier, what will make my life better, what will make people like me more, what will add to my little kingdom. And if you're not nodding your head right now, you're lying. So we're going to look at four things that Jesus confronts. He's going to confront self-preservation. He's going to confront self-indulgence. He's going to confront, I don't know why I can't say confront, self-worth. And he's going to confront the desire to be self-conscious. I'll go through those again. So this should be fun. Let's go. First thing I want you to see before we get into verse 35. The word life and soul is here. It's actually the same Greek word, tsuhe. And uh, the writer is doing kind of uh, using the range of meaning here. This word, it means the, the, the whole being, the entire self, your identity in this life and beyond. And so what Bible translators have done is they are uh, using, using translation to give the emphasis on the material versus the immaterial. And so there's a, there's a bit of a, a play going on here. And so we're going to look at our life in this world, but also the eternal soul, which we can't separate. We are not Gnostics. These, these, these things, we are a whole being. These things are together. And with us, there is no life. Our soul has no hope, only in Christ. And that's what we're going to see over these next few verses in 35 through 37. It comes up four times. Beginning in verse 35. Four. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. First thing we're going to see, there is an inherent desire for self-preservation. The one thing that every living creature on this planet has is that we all do not want to die. We all want to stay alive. This keeps us alive. God is putting this within us so we don't just jump off of a cliff. But it also keeps us thinking about ourselves. It is a good thing given to us, but the fall brings, makes everything about us. So in this verse, there's a bit of a chiastic parallelism. I don't know if you noticed it. So we start with who, the desire to save life, and then losing it, and then losing it again, and then true saving of life. So there's a, a great contrast going on here. And right away, Jesus speaks to something that we want. We want control of our own destiny. We want control of this life so bad. I want to hold on to it with every fiber of my being. Like a child holding on to somebody else's toy. I'm not letting go of this because this means everything to me right now. And you trying to hold on to your life is as foolish as a child holding on to a toy as if this is going to satisfy all of your desires. Because it won't. But we keep trying, right? Many of you have been trying for years. Maybe this is the meaning of my life. Maybe this will give me purpose. It's not easy to hear, but to the Christian, the way to live is to die. 
for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We don't have to look far. If you go one page over in your Bible in Mark chapter 10, look at verse 26. So Jesus speaks to the rich young, the rich young ruler and he sends him off because he's heavy hearted for all of his possessions. The disciples are astonished. And they say, then, then who can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Die. Leave it all behind. But my mom, die. But my land, die. Eternal life. Is it worth death to ourselves? Even if it comes with afflictions. Notice in Mark chapter 10 and in chapter 9, Jesus equates something else with himself. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel. There is no Christ without the cross. There is no Christ without the gospel. You can't just have the warm and fuzzy Jesus that you like for my sake and for the gospel. I like Jesus, but not that uncomfortable sin and cross stuff. There is no other salvation. Some of us have thought that. Some of you have had conversations with people who say that. That is a different gospel. That is a different Christ. When you die, you do it for the sake of, of Christ, not a Christ of your making. The Son of God who took on flesh to die for your sins and rose to new life that you would have new life in Him. This is what we die to. Second four, F-O-R. Verse 36. Four. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This confronts our desire to increase our kingdom, our desire for self-indulgence. He uses economic terms. What does it profit, gain, forfeit? We are to consider, to count the cost and, and the payoff in spiritual things because we do this for normal things, right? We do this in our lives. We, we, we count the cost. Is this worth a dollar? We had a conversation last night, one of those silly conversations like, I used to like Taco Bell when they were 60 cents a taco. I'm not paying $3 for a taco. It's not worth it. I've counted the cost. It is not worth it, especially not the next day, especially as you get older. <laughs> is this worth $20? Maybe. Is this worth $100? Maybe. We do this every day, whether realizing it or not. Is this worth my financial investment? Is there a gain in this? But do we do the same thing with our souls? Do we place the same emphasis on the things that will never pass away? Let's think about this for a moment. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? The whole world. 
And we've got some good imaginations. We can think about planes and private jets and islands and, 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 and power and everything that the world has to offer. Whatever makes your heart happy. Whatever makes you think you will be fulfilled. You grew up in the 80s, used to have shirts to say, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? You die penniless and soulless. Do we put the same emphasis on our souls as we do our stuff? Do we still think that the world likes us if we get the next promotion? If I get more money in my account, then I will be fulfilled, then I will be happy. Do we really believe this? Because any one of us, and there's many of us in here who've had an empty bank account and then a full bank account, we will tell you it does not matter. It does not make you more happy. Guaranteed. You want to die with the most toys? You got it. All your pleasures, everything you want, and all your sins. Then you die. You can't have both life in Christ and life in the world. You can't seek the things of this world and, and, and find fulfillment in them. Those of you who have learned that, it is a great lesson. Many of you will spend the rest of your lives learning that. Because the bad news is everything in this world will not satisfy the longing of your soul. You can keep stuffing it in. You can keep cramming it in. You can keep doing everything the world says is going to fulfill you, but it won't. That's the bad news. The good news that this word here for soul, it means your entire being. It means life in Christ. In Christ, you don't forfeit your soul, you gain your soul. And so, what does it look like to be rich in Christ? I want to share this with you, and I want you to turn here. Ephesians chapter 1. Everyone should know where this is. Because when you start to think, maybe it's too hard to follow Christ... Maybe I've given up too much. Maybe it costs too much. Because I can't see it, because I can't touch it, is it really worth it? This is what it means to be rich. Rich for eternity. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. First of all, you're rich, you know where your money comes from. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him... Want to know what your heavenly bank account looks like? In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Only a king can lavish. There is not enough money in this room to go around to lavish, any, lavish anyone with anything. This king lavishes upon us. Not just redemption, which is great. Not just forgiveness, which is great. Not just riches, but all wisdom and insight, He has lavished on us the mystery of His will. Do you realize that it is eternal riches just to know what God is doing? The God of the universe is saying, hey, let me just pull back the curtain a little bit. 
Let me show you who I am and what I'm doing. Which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. If you are in Christ, you have those spiritual blessings. You are part of God recreating all things. You are part of His eternal kingdom that will never pass away. The new heavens, the new earth, you have a share in the riches of the King. And Jesus said, it's good that I go because I've got a room waiting for you and it's decked out. But is there still profit in trying to hold on to and gain this world? Only you can answer that question. That is between you and the Lord. But I pray that you do. Next four, verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? This, we're going to look at self-worth a little bit. What really is the value of our soul? Do we know it? And this confronts our desire for value and purpose in this life. Is my sin and my own way of doing things in this life worth my eternal soul? Do I truly see how priceless and unparalleled an eternal soul is? So many people try. Well, this will give me value. If this person recognizes me, or if I get this Then I'll feel like I have worth. Then I feel like I'm important. Without Christ, the whole world could think you're important and then you die and decompose. What makes you different than a mushroom? What could a man give in exchange for his soul? Is there anything on the scales that would equal weight to the human soul? created to be in communion with God forever? The answer is, of course not. Can you put a material price on the immaterial? Absolutely not. So let's bring all these together. Is Christ worth it? Philippians chapter 3. This will be on the screen because I want to move through it quickly. But if you can get there, get there. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is the value of an eternal soul? Right there. Count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's one of those words that Bible students get excited about. This this dung heap of steaming crap. Scubula. Just sounds nasty. I consider everything crap. And I would go further, but then I'd have to have conversations with you afterward. But... (laughs) Everything is nothing compared to Christ. In order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. What a treasure it is just to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Take up your cross that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's how valuable your eternal, your, your eternal soul is. Anything possible. I want to be resurrected with Christ. That is what it means to know Christ. That is the value of your soul. So we get to the last four here. And this one's a little bit different. Uh, so now we kind of, the other ones were introspective, and these are conversations that we have within ourselves, and this one is as well. But now this one brings in specifically those around us. So now we're going to deal with our temptation to be self-conscious, to be liked by others, what other people may think of us. This is for the people-pleasers, and all of us have this to some degree. And this confronts our desire to be liked. I love what Proverbs 29, 25 says about this. The fear of man lays a snare. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This is a snare. Am I ashamed of Christ or do I declare his name? Do I shrink back? Because let's be honest. We all want peaceful, easy lives. We don't want to be bothered. We want to keep quiet. The Lord gives you an opportunity for the gospel on a silver platter. And you're like, man, I really had a Netflix show I wanted to catch up on. Maybe we'll do this another time. Are you ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation? Why would we, how could we possibly be ashamed of Christ? Everything we just read. I count it all as loss. But to know Christ and to be resurrected with him, I should shout his name from the rooftops. But if we have to be honest with ourselves, we want to be liked. We're told that the world will hate us, but no one has ever said, yeah, I'm glad that the world hates me. Unless you were really confident in Christ. I love being hated. I love being called all kinds of names and minimized and confronted. It's just easier to be quiet. But every one of us, I, every one of us is convicted. We have that one Christian friend who's really loud in public. You're like, are you really going to do this right here, right now? We're just trying to eat. These people are going to, these people are going to start looking at us. Or listen, I love going out to dinner with, uh, with, with believers, and I have to be honest about my heart here. When someone asks to pray and they give a long prayer in public, I'm like, okay, all right, okay. And it keeps going. And, and, am I the only one? And I have to repent. Like, Lord, do I care what these people think? I do. Forgive me, Lord. And I have to pray for myself while they're praying for our food. But if you were ashamed of him, and thankfully it was just their generation that was adulterous and sinful. Thankfully we don't have to deal with that at all. 
<laughs> uh, I could not have planned that any better. Thank you. Uh, that was good. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, we do live in a wicked and sinful generation. And it's going to be harder and harder to be bold and confident in Christ. It's going to be easier and easier to shrink away from the flaming arrows of, of the evil one. But it's not just the name of Jesus. Again, look what he compares to himself. The Son of Man, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Again, Jesus is easy if you never read the Bible. Oh, you like Jesus? Great. Wait till you read what he says. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Oh, I like Jesus. Have you ever read the Bible? Nope. He's just like Buddha, right? Just like every other religion. You ever heard people say this? Oh, I like Jesus. Because Jesus said this, this, and this. None of which Jesus said. Or selectively what Jesus said. If you're ashamed of me and my words... Not just the me that you've created in your own mind, like the gospel. The me that is in the scriptures. That the Old Testament and the New Testament confess and exalt. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when I come. And you shouldn't be surprised. Shouldn't be surprising, but this is humbling. I want you to get this picture here. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is he speaking about? When he comes, is coming, guaranteed in the future, in glory. This is the final judgment, the final, the, 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 the last things, the final eschaton. I want you to look at Matthew 25. There's no way you can read this and not go into the Olivet Discourse. There's no, and we're not going to go through all of it. But I want you to see, because a lot of people debate, okay, what does this mean, and then what does verse 1 mean of chapter 9? We're going to look at both of those quickly. He tells us three things in, in 38. When the Son of Man comes, the glory of His Father, and with the holy angels. We're going to see both of those here. What is He speaking of? Verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Okay, tracking so far. And with all the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If you are ashamed of me, you will be with the goats. You don't want to be on the left side. You want to hear those words, I've prepared my kingdom for you. You are blessed by my Father. Because you are not ashamed of me in this wicked and sinful generation. Because you can have the whole world now but you'll be with the goats in torment forever. We don't want that. It's not the option that we 
look for. You want to hear those words, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is eternal riches. Then we go into verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God uh, after it has come with power. And let's just admit right up front, this is difficult. A lot of uh, very smart people disagree on this. And so, I'm going to try to simplify it. We are going to simplify it. So what is exactly is Jesus referring to here? I love that many of you read the text ahead of time. I love that many of you are asking me questions during the week because this is good. Then I know what to address. So I got asked this week, do they really taste death? Yes. This is not, no one has ever tasted a little bit of death and spit it out. This is fully taking on death, dead. None of you will die until they see this actual sight. Yes. This is continuing the theme of sight that we've looked at over uh, the past month or so. Given eyes to see, they, they will see. Going from no sight to partial sight to seeing the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus talking about here? Because we had just looked at the Son of Man coming in glory, and it sounds like the same language here. Now could it be the simplest explanation, which it often is? So Mark did not put verse 1 of chapter 9, and there were no chapters and verses when Mark wrote. But he did not put this verse after the previous verse by accident. Neither did Matthew or Luke, who put it in the exact same place directly before the transfiguration, which we will look at next week. And if you just skip ahead, what do they see in the transfiguration? Verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And two guys who have not been alive for hundreds of years show up next to him. If that's not something from the kingdom of God, if that's not the power of God, I don't know what is. So how do we look at these? Verse 38 is the end of the age. Jesus returning in the glory of his Father. That is only for end times language. That is only for the final judgment. So he says this is the final thing. That's the day you need to look forward to. But the power of my kingdom, you're going to begin to see peaks of it before then. Only six days from now, you're going to see power of the kingdom of God because Jesus is going to be transfigured. You're going to see a preview of his glory before he comes in full glory. His transfiguration is a peek into the kingdom of God. His resurrection is proof of the unending nature of his kingship. His ascension is proof of the power of God at the right hand of high where he sits. Pentecost is proof of the power of God in dwelling and dwelling upon the saints of the church. Not many days from now, there are some standing here who will not taste death. They'll be alive. And their eyes will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you saw the transfiguration, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, you've seen power like you've never seen before. But even if we get this wrong, 
What they see is not the point. The point is that they see. Notice the difference there. It's not what they see, but that they see. This is the support that their mind should be focused on the things of God. He wants to encourage them. The things of his kingdom, your eternal souls, not the things of, your man, the things of man in your mortal lives. Going back to the play on life and soul. The things of God, your eternal soul, the power of the kingdom. If you are in me, you will see all that. That's the point. Jesus stokes their expectation. He encourages them after he convicts them. If you stand with me, you will see power and glory like you have never seen before. But if you stand against me, all that power will be heaped upon you in judgment. Jesus ends here to show that the cost is worth it. Just wait. Don't go anywhere. I've got something to show you. And this is going to continue to unfold as we get into the second half of the book of Mark. So this kind of ends the first section. The rest of the book of Mark is going to be focused on the Messiah and his kingdom as he begins to open it up to them, beginning with the transfiguration. We're going to see more and more as he gets closer and closer to the cross. And so quickly I want to summarize here. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, there, are, there are many Uh, But this one has always struck me. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. From mere Christianity. When we think about the price of our soul, of our lives, trying to gain the whole world, we were never meant to be at home here. All that stuff you try to gain, all the stuff you try to hold on to, broken toys and worn out shoes, get rid of them. Jesus offers you new wineskin and a new world. Our citizenship is in heaven. But are you still trying to hold on to this world and the things of this world? We're not supposed to store up riches here. They can be taken at any moment. We're to store up treasures in heaven. And there's the real question of, are you ashamed of Christ and his gospel in this generation? It's becoming easier. Every day it's going to be easier and easier to be ashamed and to be quiet and to shrink back as the world and its megaphone gets louder and louder against all things that glorify God. And so as we prepare for communion, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. If you are united to Christ, His self-denial demands ours. Christ laid down His life. Do we expect to keep ours? His suffering earned our very lives, our very souls. Isn't dying to ourselves and suffering for the Gospel a small price to pay? These words from Romans 5 will be on the screen. Here the believer can find comfort in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenge. Notice, verse 1 begins with, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This is for believers. If you are in Christ, this is your encouragement. 
You've been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That would be enough, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We don't like suffering. Christian, rejoice in your suffering. Why? Knowing that it produces, then you knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you know the great cost that was paid for your salvation? Do you know the great cost that is required of you? And do you know the greater grace that has been given to you in Christ? Take a few moments. Prepare your minds and hearts to begin. We get ready to approach the table.